Hey, again, welcome those of you who are gathering with us a little bit later today. Um, and for this past week, or well, this past Sunday, we were starting a little mini series, which is going to end today, um, just these two part series. But we talked about discipleship. And last week, we were talking about growing deep in our faith. We, sp we spoke about how we want the roots of the gospel to kind of travel from our head all the way down to our feet as we're encouraged to walk or live in a manner that is pleasing to God. Now, that's the first half of discipleship, right? Growing deep. Uh, but the second half of discipleship, uh, which is today's sermon title, is reaching wide. So last week, we, saw, we talked about growing deep. Today, we're going to be talking about reaching wide. And what we're going to discover is that through reaching wide, uh, not only are we faithful to God, uh, but it also brings us to a deeper level of faith as well as we begin to find this God-given joy and this God-given purpose that is deep within our hearts. Now, for this past few weeks, I've actually been thinking about the idea of joy, uh, or more specifically, the question, what brings us joy in our lives? Um, I think often in life, I, I speak about this quite often, I think often in life we experience these momentary uh, glimpses of joy when we accomplish something or if we go somewhere or if we acquire something. Um, I remember not too long ago when I first landed in Japan, there was this excitement within my heart, right? There's a sense of adventure, the sense of wonder, like, wow, like everything here is totally far and I haven't seen trees that look like this. I haven't seen birds that look like this. And there's this sense of wonder, this joy, this awe. But by the final day, um, I was still happy, don't get me wrong, but that joy that I experienced on the first day was no longer there, kind of subsided. Um, kind of like a child who quickly gets bored of their new toys. I think there are many things in life that give us this quick boost of mood, but then kind of tapers off, like caffeine or like coffee. So what are some things, in my mind, well, I was wondering, what are some things in this world that produce a joy that does not fade? And in the style of Proverbs, I think there are three things that produce joy for that produce fulfillment. Creation, relationships, good deeds, and God. Whether it's our first day in this world or the very last day of our lives, the sights of God's creation, the sights of a sunrise, the sight of a sunset will, for some reason, never lose its wonder or its amazement. The blooming of flowers never fails to captivate us, no matter how many times we have seen them grow. Similarly, we never grow tired of relationships, whether we are young or old, whether we're making a new friend or reconnecting with an old friend or having a new pet. There's always a deep sense of joy and fulfillment when we make and foster these relationships. And the same thing goes for good deeds as well. Whether it's the first time we have done something good or whether it's the millionth time, there's always joy um, in seeing someone being brought back up to their feet. And so we see that despite the sin that lives within our hearts, by nature, we are actually all geared towards loving creation and loving our neighbors as well. Perhaps, but perhaps, the greatest source of joy and fulfillment is our relationship uh, with God. 
And in this picture above, this is actually our Lutheran Brethren Church plant all the way in Ishinomaki, Japan, um, called the House of Hope. And the guy playing the guitar there, he leads the entire uh, church plant. His name is Ito-san. But when we develop a relationship with God and we come to know him, we experience a love that is simply beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Uh, we find the forgiveness of sins. We find the free gift of eternal life. But more than that, I think we also begin to find purpose in this world that extends beyond our lives and reaches to every single corner of this world. And so today, we're going to talk exactly about that. We're going to talk about how Jesus empowers us to go forth to make disciples of all nations. And we'll see how he helps us overcome shame through his grace. We're gonna talk about the importance of his missions. And finally, finally, we're going to wrap up by talking about the assurance of his presence. So let's take a look today at our passage, which comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And it reads, Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Actually, we're gonna talk about the word doubt uh, a little later. It actually doesn't mean doubt, but we'll talk about that when that time comes. So when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that phrase, I'm with you always, if you guys remember back when uh, God commissioned Moses, he said the same thing, I am with you. Now, before we kind of dive into this passage, let me just kind of give a backdrop of what happened. So before Jesus was captured by the Romans, before the religious authorities captured him, um, he told the disciples that his time is coming up. But then he encouraged them not to worry because again, he will rise again and he will meet them back in Galilee. That's what he told Peter. I will meet you back in Galilee, basically where their adventure first started. And Peter's response to Jesus foreshadowing his death was proclaiming, you know, Lord, even if everyone abandons you, you know, I never will. But as we know, Peter and all of the disciples actually do abandon Jesus. They've spent years living with Jesus. And when the time comes for them to show their loyalty, to show their faith, they all simply fall away. And so Jesus is crucified, buried, all alone. The disciples all go into hiding, but Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, on the third day, they go to the tomb to find it not only empty, but to find the resurrected Jesus. And when Jesus meets the woman, he tells them this. He tells them to tell the disciples to leave Jerusalem and to go back to Galilee, as he promised before he was crucified, to go back to where everything had first started. And so from our, our Western perspective, we, we don't really make much meaning out of this. But one question I would like to ask you guys to think about is, how do you think the disciples felt when they heard these instructions to go back to Galilee? 
I think there are two natural responses. The first response is joy, right? Joy that, hey, Jesus is back again. The guy we've been following for three years, he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, he has given us a hope to live for, he is back. Our king has returned. But the second natural response is shame. They've abandoned their teacher. They have abandoned their friend, the very person who has called them as their own brothers. And as disciples make their long journey back to Galilee, where everything first started, passing through areas where they've once seen Jesus perform miracles, some of them are probably wondering to themselves, how can I show my face to Jesus? Especially Peter, right? The man who talked the talk about dying with Christ, about never forsaking him. But when the rubber hit the road, right, he denied Jesus and went into hiding. How could Peter have the audacity to show his face to Christ with all of this shame in his heart. In our passage, we see just that, that when the disciples finally made it to the mountain in Galilee, they all worshiped him, but some hesitated. In the NIV, they translated this as doubt, but this is actually, I don't think, an accurate translation as a Greek word literally means to hesitate. And if we understood this passage with the perspective of shame in mind, it makes sense, right? Their master and teacher, whom they betrayed, is now in their presence, and hesitation has seized their mind. I might be taking a bit of a poetic liberty here, but I don't think it would be too off the mark if I said, you know, the disciples probably wondered or thought to themselves, should I approach Jesus? What does he think about me now? What does he think about the fact that I rejected him? Like, what do I do? Do I worship him? Do I, do I stand off in a distance? How do I approach the Lord who I have abandoned? However, Jesus demonstrates something beautiful. Jesus demonstrates unrestrained grace towards his disciples. Despite what they've done wrong, despite the shame in their hearts, Jesus does two things. Jesus, he first comes to his disciples much like how the father came to the prodigal son. And by coming to the disciples, Jesus restores their relationship in that they are still his brothers and his disciples. They have been unfaithful to Christ, but Jesus will continue to be faithful to them and to love them. And so just by coming, just by simply being in their presence, Jesus shows to them that their sins are forgiven and that their shames are wiped away. Now that their relationship is now restored with Jesus, Jesus does the second thing. Jesus now speaks to the disciples. And by speaking to the disciples, Jesus also, he, you know, he does two things again. The first thing is that where there was once a shame, Jesus now shows and demonstrates honor to his disciples by trusting them with a mission. At Galilee, the disciples began their journey three years ago, and three years later, Jesus meets them there again to restore their titles as disciples, even though they have left him. And Jesus does this by introducing them to the Great Commission, to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and to teach everyone everything that Jesus had commanded. And by doing so, Jesus not only restores honor to his disciples, but he also gives them a sense of purpose in life. Now that they're given the privilege and the opportunity, not just to serve themselves, not to just to serve the Jewish people, 
but they are literally sent on a mission to serve the entire world, to save the entire world. And the wonderful thing, I think, is that we, as the children of God, we are also wrapped up in the same honor and the same privilege. We too are called to share the love of Jesus with others. We too are to share the message of hope and salvation with those around us. We are called to be the salt and the light of the world by bringing hope and healing to those who are lost and hurting. We're given the honor and the privilege to serve our God. But not only do we share the gospel, but Jesus also encourages us to realize that disciple making is an integral part of our faith and an integral part of God's redemptive work in the world. When we make disciples, we're not just bringing new believers into the family of God, but we're also helping to build up the church by teaching and training these new believers to become mature and faithful followers of Jesus. But why is this so important? Why not just save their souls and you know, walk away? If we were to imagine disciple making like a house, uh, the foundation of the house would be the initial conversion of a new believer, right? This is where they come to know the saving grace of Christ and they accept him as our Lord or as their Lord. This is the foundation of all discipleship. This is where it all begins. However, after you lay the foundation of a house, you wouldn't say, well, this is done. You know, I'm just going to sleep here on the floor, right? That, 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 would be a little, that would be a little bizarre. No, you would build up the walls. You would build up a roof, you know? And this is exactly what disciple, sorry, this is exactly what disciple making is like. This foundation, the truth of the gospel is the foundation, but we have to add upon it. We build upon it the walls, the roof. We put plumbing electricity, furniture, and all other elements that make a truly spectacular architecture possible. Likewise, as we make disciples, salvation is the first step, but we also have to help them grow and mature in their faith. Not only do we teach them the truths about God and the gospel, but we also allow them to discover their spiritual gifts and callings. We give them the tools necessary to build a deeper relationship with God. And ultimately, we give them tools so that they too can be disciple makers alongside us and alongside God. So how do we, who are mature Christians, how do we make disciples? What's the initial step we can make? We are willing, but what's that first step that we can do? And the first step, in my opinion, the first step we can make is to simply say hello. I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but by saying hello, it shows us three things. First, it shows us that you're intentional. You're actively seeking out opportunities to share the gospel with others, and you're interested in developing relationship with both non-believers and believers. Second, it shows that you are bold. Saying hello, in my opinion, maybe just because I'm an introvert, saying hello is perhaps maybe the hardest hurdle to overcome because we are stepping out of our comfort zone as we're prepared not, to just, not just to share our lives, but to share our faith with someone else. And the third and final thing it shows is that disciple making is all about relationships. It involves listening to them, encouraging them, and walking alongside them. 
and relationships, it's not just about teaching our knowledge or just teaching you know, everything we know in our head, but it's also our willingness to live the gospel alongside them. And the beautiful and wonderful thing is, as we live out our calling to make disciples of all nations, one of God's most beautiful promises is fulfilled before our very eyes. As Jesus tells his disciples, and he, I believe he also tells us as well, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is an incredibly powerful assurance because it shows us that even though Jesus has gone back to heaven, he is still actively working in this world. We still see the spirit moving throughout the face of the world. A few weeks ago, we heard that through Michael and Dolores Kittleson about their ministry in Taiwan and now this invitation to partner alongside God in his worldwide mission, that privilege and honor is now given to us. And so through this assurance of God's presence, we can be sure of two things. First, we can be sure that God, who has begun a good work within us, he will carry that work out to completion. God will actively continue to work within our lives to allow us to grow and to mature. In Christianity, we call this process sanctification, where God continually works within us so that we can be transformed to think and behave more and more like Christ. But the second assurance is that as we go about our daily lives to seek to fulfill God's mission, we recognize that Jesus is with us every step of the way. We're not left to carry out this mission with our, by our own strength or by our own abilities, but we recognize that the presence of Jesus is with us, empowering us and guiding us. But the deeper part of this truth is that even when we face ridicule, scorn, or persecution, we are not alone in that either. That as we suffer as a result of our faith, Christ bears that suffering alongside us as he walks alongside us. And although I think that these things are all comforting to know, the last thing that I want to stress today is that Jesus is more than an emotional support buddy. Um, as Jesus first spoke to his disciples, the first thing he wanted them to know is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is a, truly a remarkable and awe-inspiring truth because the same person, what Jesus is saying here, is that the same person who created the universe, who created you, the same person who has authority over every single molecule of this world, every single atom of this world, this God is standing alongside you. On Friday night, as um, Pastor Stephen and I, as we were planning to teach on the topic of trust, uh, we did the classic you know, opening activity of trust fall, right? Where someone would fall backwards and trust that someone would be behind them to kind of pick them up. And so we would call volunteers all, you know, to come forward and to fall backwards, and I would either catch them or swoop them up. Before our final volunteer, I, I tried to switch the roles. I found the smallest person in the room, and I began to fall backwards. Now, of course, I didn't fall all the way backwards because I would get hurt and our youth would be demolished in the process. And all the youths, they started to joke like, oh, Pastor Braden, you don't trust her, you don't trust her. But the thing is, I was trying to make this specific point. Trust involves two things. The first thing is that you trust that this person will fulfill that 
their end of the promise. We trust that Jesus will be with us to the end of the age. However, the second part of trust is that we have to know that they have the power to deliver on that promise. And in God, we find both. God is not only with us, but God has the power to bring life in even the darkest of situations. God has the power to walk alongside us, to transform the hearts and minds of those whom we speak to. God has the power to bring healing into people's lives, whether that is physically, emotionally, or spiritually. As Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so as we end our message here, I want to end it by encouraging you all to remember who exactly is with you. This is the same God who can calm the storms, the same God who opened the eyes of the blind, the same God who has defeated sin and death, and this God is with you till the end of the age. And so why don't we come together for a time of prayer and really thank God for who he is. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you today for who you are, that you indeed are Lord, and you indeed are God, God Almighty. And you have sent your Son and your Spirit into this world and into our lives to transform us into the likeness of your Son. Uh, Father, we thank you for the words that you will never leave us, nor will you ever forsake us. And as we live out the gospel message, as we bring the good news to others, as we disciple our brothers and sisters, we recognize that you are most definitely here. We see you breaking down walls and barriers. We see you bringing all sorts of people from different faith backgrounds into our youth and children's program. We see parents being willing to hear the gospel. And one by one, we genuinely see that your spirit is beginning to open doors for your kingdom to grow in Sunset Park. And Father, we're so honored, all of us here, we are so honored to be part of that mission. We all have a place to serve, and you have given all of us all sorts of gifts to serve you, so we thank you for that. But Lord, we finally pray that as we're about to soon leave the four walls of this church, we're about to be sent off as missionaries to wherever we are, whether, whether that is where we work, live, or play. And so we encourage, so Father, encourage us and empower us to be ambassadors for you. Allow us to be truly agents of change in this world. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen.